Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Neil Levy. He's Senior Research Fellow at the Oxford Where Hero Center for Practical Ethics and Professor of Philosophy at Macquarie University in Sydney. And today we're going to talk about his book, Bad Beliefs, Why They Happen to Good People. So, Dr. Levy, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thank you. So, what is a bad belief? What do you mean by it? Um, nothing very precise. I, um, I don't want to uh, load too much on the term. I simply mean uh, beliefs which conflict with the great mass of available evidence uh, as assessed by people I call epistemic authorities. So the best examples are scientists because we can agree they're epistemic authorities in their field. Right. And what makes a belief rational or irrational in your understanding? These are terms that, that I, uh, I can't legislate how to use them. And I don't want to legislate how to use them. They're terms that are used in lots of different ways. And I think that's fine. Um, but I only want to pick out one particular way, which is rational belief formation is formation that updates on the evidence presented. So that means it's an internal notion. It's how well am I processing my evidence? That means I don't need to be correct to be rational. If um, somebody convinces me that um, dinosaurs aren't extinct, but actually they're living in Bhutan, and they present me with what looks like to me good evidence, then I should believe that dinosaurs are living in, in Bhutan. Um, in fact, it would be irrational for me not to, even though I'd be right not to believe it, because there are no dinosaurs uh, non-avian dinosaurs living in Bhutan. Uh, I would also like to go through two or three more concepts that you talk about at the beginning of the book, uh, because I think they are important to really put things into perspective here. What is higher order evidence? So, generally when we're thinking of evidence, we're thinking of facts uh, which make a belief more or less probable. So things like um, eyewitness testimony, uh, using a, you know, completely standard kinds of examples. We're trying to work out who committed the crime. Somebody says they saw Ricardo leaving uh, 10 minutes after the, the crime from that house. That's evidence. He was there. So that's evidence he committed the crime. That's first order evidence. It's a, a, a piece of information which bears directly on who committed the crime. Higher order evidence is evidence about evidence. Um, so uh, if uh, somebody tells you that their friend saw Ricardo leave the house around then, that's evidence of evidence that you, you, your friend's evidence bears on uh, somebody else's uh, testimony, which bears on the, um, the actual uh, belief we're, we're testing. 
And of course, you can keep going up higher, but generally, second order evidence is um, the most important higher order evidence. What is it that you call the epistemic environment? Um, I don't, again, I'm not very precise in how I use this. I'm not a, I'm not a, a um, in many ways, I'm not a traditional analytic philosopher because um, I don't get particularly worked up about precision. I have in mind um, all those resources, sources of information, which uh, provide us with um, testimony, in a, in a way, implicitly, when, when we think of testimony, as philosophers use it, um, they, they have in mind uh, verbal testimony. Um, what did, what did they say? That's the testimony. But I have in mind largely implicit testimony, um, which um, is widely distributed across the world without people thinking about it. Um, and uh, also all those sources of information that we think of as testimony, things like uh, uh, newspapers, online sources of information, um, that all constitutes our epistemic environment. Mm -hmm. So uh, at the beginning I've asked you what you mean by bad beliefs, but what is a belief even to begin with? Um, so a traditional way of understanding in philosophy is to think of it as a map we steer by. It's a way of representing the world in order to uh, be able to achieve your goals. So we have certain desires. In order to those desires uh, to be fulfilled, we need to know how they map onto the way the world is. If I want to, you know, uh, satisfy my hunger, I need to have a map of where food is available and how to prepare it. So roughly, I believe, in the sense I'm using it, again, there are multiple senses, is a map of the world. It's a representation. And should we take seriously what people say they believe in? Not always. Uh, and I think this is something I didn't stress enough in the book. People do engage in reporting apparent beliefs for lots of reasons. Uh, to uh, let you know what team they're on. You know, somebody who, who says um, Black Lives Matter, for example, may not be all that concerned with black people and their well-being. They may be more concerned with showing what team they're on. Um, they may be signaling identity. Uh, they may be signaling that they're trustworthy. Also, I think it's important that there's actually quite a lot of evidence, growing evidence, that in surveys, people not only signal identity and signal their team, they also engage in a whole lot of trolling, just sheer trolling. They pick answers for the, for the heck of it. And I think that inflates reports of bad beliefs. I don't believe that anything like as many people who said when they were asked, you know, Pew survey in uh, 2016, I believe it was, you believe Barack Obama is the Antichrist? I forget the figures, but about a third of Republicans, I think, said, yes, 
I don't believe it. Some of them probably, but a lot of them just thought, I don't like that guy. I'm going to answer yes to this question. Mm -hmm. What would you say are some of the main reasons why sometimes people express beliefs they don't really hold? So identity, but also I think um, particularly in in surveys, I'm a naturalistic philosopher. I think our, our, our uh, philosophical work has to be consistent with, but also um, I want to go further and you know be inspired by the best scientific evidence. Um, I don't think our intuitions, which philosophers love, are usually as reliable as, as uh, empirical evidence. But when we look at the empirical evidence about beliefs, lots and lots of it comes from social psychology uh, or just uh, public opinion polling. And people answer these questions for many reasons. Um, now, lots of people are cooperative, but sometimes they're even too cooperative. They try to guess what is the, what is the person wanting to say? Um, what kind of picture should I present? Um, sometimes when they believe that, you know, this, these questions are being asked by a typical psychology professor who they rightly think is probably uh, on the left of politics, and they, they think this survey is trying to make me look bad as a Republican. Um, they may actually have some sort of like reaction formation where they say, you want to know whether Republicans believe that Democrats are really uh, lizard people who eat children? Well, stuff you. I'm going to say I believe that. So people answer these questions for many different reasons. Uh, Self-presentation, identity, to feel good about themselves, but also uh, because they, they uh, simply don't respect the people asking the question. So we have to be careful about all of that. So I'm more impressed uh, by evidence that people actually act consistently with their beliefs. So I, I, my my uh, central example of a bad belief in, in my book is climate change skepticism. I do think that lots of people say um, climate change isn't real, not because they believe that, but because they're expressing their, their support for one side of politics. But uh, they don't believe it's anywhere near as significant a problem as science suggests it is, because if they did, um, they wouldn't be acting as, as, um, as they are. So they may, in fact, really not believe climate change isn't real and really believe, well, it's real, but it really doesn't matter very much. In either case, they've got a bad belief. Uh, wouldn't you say that at least some beliefs are a form of post-hoc rationalization? I'm sure that happens. So um, I do think we have bad introspective access um, to our beliefs. You ask me what I believe about something I haven't thought of before, uh, and maybe should have something about my own views. Something that you know is is um, 
occurs to you as a pressing issue on the basis of my book. And then I'm going to have to try to work out, well, how should I answer that? Sometimes I can simply retrieve it from memory because I have thought about it. But I have to, um, but often I have to generate a response on the spot. And all kinds of things are going on when I do that. I'm trying to make inferences about what I've written. Um, E.M. Forster wrote, the novelist, the English novelist, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? I'm a great believer in that. Um, what do I believe? Well, I wrote it down, so I must believe what I said. And now you ask me to extend it. Well, I think, well, what did the stuff I write commit me to? So that's post hoc. Is it a rationalization? Uh, sometimes uh, it is, because social desirability and wanting to think well of yourself are real influences on us. So sometimes that post hoc construction might count as a rationalization. So before moving on to other general topics about inaccurate beliefs. Um, are there really many people out there that believe in conspiracy theories? Is there any good evidence for that? Well, I think it's an open question what proportion of people believe the more bizarre conspiracy theories. We all believe some conspiracy theories. You know, I want to I want to um, stress that because there are philosophers who get very worked up about this issue. Um, they say, but you know, Watergate was a conspiracy. Uh, it really was, and you should believe that you know Richard Nixon was involved in the uh, burglary at the Watergate Hotel and tried to cover it up, and that was a conspiracy. So we should believe in some conspiracies. Um, so it's the more bizarre ones we have in mind, which um, where it's an open question how many people believe in them. Some people act consistently with them. For example, Pizzagate, most people didn't. Most people said, oh, you, you, I believe Pizzagate, you know that Democrats are running a child sex trafficking ring from the basement of a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. Um, most of them didn't do anything about it, uh, which calls into question whether they really believed it. I think often they thought they did, but you know, again, we don't have good introspective access and it's only when the rubber hits the road and you start thinking, really, do I believe it? Some people certainly did believe it. Um, uh, Edgar Welch, I think his name was, that famously went there with a rifle to free the children. He believed it. He's not the only one. Um, another person uh, tried to set fire to the restaurant. Um, so there is, I'm sure some people genuinely believe it. It's an open question what proportion of the people who say they believe it really do. Mm -hmm. Are religious beliefs specifically factual beliefs or are they beliefs of some other kind? Well, I think uh, at least many core religious beliefs look like factual beliefs uh, to me. Um, people are, people who have worried that they're not factual beliefs, and this particularly Neil Van Leeuwen, who's um, influential for questioning this, 
have looked at evidence of inconsistency between behavior and belief. So lots of people say um, they believe in God, but then don't act as though they thought God is watching them. Or um, people who sacrifice to, uh, to, to the gods, the, um, people who believe in ancestral religions, for example, then consume the food themselves rather than, um, you know, leaving it really for the gods. Um, now, I, I agree, and I, you know, looked at it myself. I agree that the behavior-belief mismatch is the right place to look. But I'm not convinced that the kind of behavior-belief uh, mismatch that the cognitive science of religion has emphasized is... Um, particularly powerful. And, you know, I want to stress here that a lot of this evidence comes from relatively small studies which are underpowered and I don't think um, that uh, we should be at all confident they're going to replicate. Mm -hmm. So another question, do levels of intelligence and education have an influence in how predisposed people are to holding inaccurate beliefs or not? They do. Unfortunately, some of that influence is in the wrong direction, in the sense that it makes people more likely to endorse bad beliefs under certain circumstances. So, for example, um, this is Dan Kahan's evidence. With Democrats, people on the left in the United States, unfortunately so much of this evidence is American. But with Democrats, the more educated people are and the better they do at tests of thinking like the cognitive reflection task, the more likely they are to uh, be strong believers in climate change, that it's, a, that it's anthropogenic and that it's a serious problem. So that looks just like what we'd hoped more intelligence, more education leads to better beliefs. But with Republicans, it's actually the opposite. The more you know, uh, and the better you are at thinking, and the more specifically you know about science, the less likely you are to endorse um, climate science. So that raises the question why. And that, um, that's an interesting question which isn't wholly resolved. One possibility is um, more thinking skills gives you more ability to rebut arguments. Uh, you give me an argument for something I don't want to believe. If I've got good thinking skills, I can probably find a problem with it. Uh, because after all, all arguments um, ha have problems and all evidence can be contested, especially, you know, any evidence you could present it to, to me in half an hour. It's one thing to say the evidence for climate change is overwhelming, but to present the evidence for climate change would take literally years. Mm -hmm. And I've been able to understand much of it anyway because I just don't have the sophistication, I don't have the maths. Um, so any evidence you can present to me, any evidence that's been presented in the media for that, can be questioned. The, the more intelligent you are, the more you know, the more convincingly you can question it. Um, so that's one possibility. The other is um, the more 
aware you are, uh, better educated they are, you are, the more you know about what people on your side should believe. And you might uh, be uh, better at reporting your identity uh, than people who know less. And lots of people who, you know, describe themselves as Democrats or Republicans actually know very, very little about Democrats and Republicans. They don't do very well at um, tests about so what do Republicans believe about welfare, for example. So uh, it may well be that political sophistication and other kinds of sophistication go together, and that just makes people uh, more likely to engage in um, reporting their identity rather than answering the questions. And perhaps in that case, you're also more persuasive, right? Yes, yes. Um, and, um, you know, we, we, uh, we defer to people on our side, but we also are sensitive to other things. And people who are on our side and look sophisticated are going to have a, um, uh, an edge when it comes to convincing other people. Yeah. particularly those on their side. Mm -hmm. uh, does holding inaccurate beliefs have anything to do with levels of rationality, rationality with people being more or less rational? Well, I don't think it has a lot to do with rationality. Um, it, might, it might be that uh, people use different and less sophisticated strategies uh, if um, they are less sophisticated in their thinking styles. So they defer more, for example. Um, but that's a rational thing to do. So, uh, and I do it, you know, all the time when, when um, I want to know whether a scientific theory is true. I ask people who I think know more about the science than I do. And if they say, oh, I think it's true, but, but even more if they say scientists think it's true, the relevant scientists, then I believe it. And that's just deferring. Um, and that's a pretty unsophisticated strategy, which is available for every, to everybody, and we all use it. So you may need to be more sophisticated to use other kinds of strategies, but this deference strategy is, I want to say, a rational strategy. It's how I should form beliefs um, if I can't assess the evidence for myself. Mm -hmm. So we've already talked about levels of education, intelligence, rationality. Does political ideology also play a role, a role here? It plays a big role um, because political ideology is so closely linked to, to, to identity, at least uh, as a matter of fact. I don't know if it needs to be. Perhaps it, perhaps it need not be. Perhaps there are other possible societies in which religion or sports team or something else would be really definitive of who you are. But in our societies, largely, somebody says, I'm a Christian Democrat, or I'm a social Democrat, or I'm a communist. They've told us something important about who they are. And we respond um, accordingly with, with likes and dislikes. Um, and because this is so central to our identities, 
um, to, for ourselves, not just for others. We want to have the beliefs associated with our identities. So um, as someone who's, let's say, a communist, I want to believe what communists believe. And, you know, it's a, it's a, we see this on social media all the time. It's seen as quite an accusation to have the wrong beliefs. You're supposed to be woke. You shouldn't believe that. You're supposed to be a Republican. You shouldn't believe that. You're really a, a rhino or a Republican in name only. So people feel under pressure to line their beliefs up with their ideology, with, I think, identity as the, the mediating uh, factor here. Mm -hmm. So another kind of question now. Are people really that passionately committed to defending their own beliefs? Well, um, in many situations, they do seem very passionately uh, committed. And uh, anybody who's got into an argument on uh, social media um, has seen how people get really, really worked up um, about their beliefs and uh, will engage in, you know, hours of, of discussion and behind the scenes, you know, frantically Googling to find evidence to support what they're saying. And they get very upset. So in that sense, particularly under partisan pressure, pressure from the other side, we feel very uh, worked up about um, defending our beliefs. But then they can be surprisingly easy to shift um, under other conditions. Um, so I think uh, there's good evidence, largely indirect, but highly suggestive evidence that uh, people who, who would say this belief is something I'm passionately committed to might very quickly drop it if they're convinced, oh, that isn't important for people with our identity. <clears throat> for example, by somebody who they regard as a thought leader on their side, saying, oh, well, actually, that's not true, or it's just not particularly relevant. <clears throat> Under those kinds of situations, people can shift very, very rapidly. And I think our lack of good introspective access to our own beliefs helps here because um, we, we, um, we don't remember easily exactly what we believed. Um, we may not remember what we believed at all, but even if we do remember, oh yes, I used to believe that, but you may confabulate a lower degree of commitment to it than you really had. Mm -hmm. So changing topics now a little bit, is individual cognition good enough to prevent us from holding inaccurate beliefs? So I'm, I'm a little shifty on the, in the book on this. In some ways, I want to answer yes. Um, but it depends how we understand individual cognition. I think as individuals, a lot of what we do, and we do it well, is looking to other people. What should I believe about climate change? Well, you know, if I would look out the window in Oxford right now, I probably think climate change is real because it's pretty hot for Oxford right now. But, you know, maybe I look in six months' time and I think, well, climate change business is uh, overblown. If I rely on my individual cognition alone, I'm probably pretty bad at it. Even if I try to keep records, you know, um, I'm not going to 
I'm not going to get a statistically significant sample. I'm going to be at best a chance in answering these questions. But I don't think that is how we go about it. We very largely go about it by asking those people who we think know more than us, or very often those people who um, we think are plugged into networks. So um, you may think it's crazy to ask a politician about these things rather than a scientist. But when we do that, I think what we are, we are doing is thinking, well, the politicians probably. Um, where lots of chains of transmission of evidence converge from people who know more. So the politician is a reliable person. So do we call that individual cognition? Well, it's not individual cognition as we normally think about it. It's individual cognition in the service of looking to others. Um, and often we don't even realize we're doing that. I mean, the, uh, there's some nice papers where people report how much they know about something by themselves without needing to say Google it, but they have an inflated perception of how much they know by themselves without Googling it. If they've actually got, um, Google accessible to them, uh, equally, they think they understand things better if they're told that scientists understand it. So uh, we have mistaken beliefs about um, how good individual cognition is all by ourselves, but we don't tend to act on those mistaken beliefs all that much. Instead, we use our individual cognition to look to others. Mm -hmm. When it comes to knowledge specifically, do you think it's best understood as a social or an individual phenomenon? I do think it's very much a social phenomenon, um, a deeply social phenomenon. So in that for lots of things that we know, no individual is really in a position to point to the evidence that shows that that's the case. For example, you know, think of the theory of evolution. Um, it uh, rests on innumerable different pieces of evidence from lots of different fields, and nobody's in a position to um, get a grip on more than a tiny fraction of that evidence in a tiny percentage of those fields. Uh, it's because it's a scientific community which is in which disciplines leak into one another that we can be confident that the, the claims are being tested from many different perspectives at once. Um, and we know that evolution is real. Really know, it's not just a confident belief, but we really know it. Um, we know it. Uh, I only know it derivatively. It's because the community of inquirers has probed it and settled on this uh, belief to, you know, with a very large percentage of people, enough that we can call it consensus of relevant people, that I can be said to know it. Mm -hmm. When it comes to arriving at more accurate beliefs, what would you say is the role played by things like group deliberation and argumentative reasoning? And in this case, argumentative reasoning, I'm using the term employed by Hugo Mercier and then Sperber, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, I, yeah, I'm convinced, I'm impressed by their evidence, um, uh, Messier and Sperber. Um, I think Messier is the, the leader of this project. I'm not as convinced by their interpretation of their evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so they show that groups are better than individuals at a whole range of tasks. They're even better often than the best individual within the group at answering factual questions. And of course, you know, there is other evidence, uh, Cass Sunstein reviews lots of it, um, that groups outperform individuals. And my other source uh, of of inspiration for this is the work in cultural evolution on how cultural lineages uh, hit upon excellent solutions to ecological problems which no individual could possibly hit upon. I'm not convinced as much by uh, Mercier's interpretation of this evidence, which is that group cognition um, is developed for the purposes of convincing others. I think um, given the full range of evidence, uh, and I emphasize parts of cultural evolution that he doesn't emphasize being more um, disposed towards the Paris school. Um, I'm, I'm more disposed, I guess, to the West Coast American school of cultural evolution, although I don't think there's a huge conflict between them. I think that we should think that group deliberation is actually an adaptation for finding the truth, not just for convincing others. Of course, convincing others is a good way to find the truth. Um, under certain conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all of this in mind, uh, do you think that the idea of a solitary genius is a myth? I do. Um, now, I don't want to deny, of course, some people are much smarter than others. Um, somebody said, if you're the smartest person in the room, find another room. I'm lucky I'm never the smartest person in the room. Um, so there are real differences in intelligence, there are real differences in knowledge, there's real differences in uh, intellectual virtues. All of that's important and uh, there are individuals who can do things that I can't. I work with psychologists, I bring them in because they know more than I do about those things, but I don't need to work with the entire psychological community. Just one, uh, it's good one, um, shout out to Robert Ross, um, is, enables me to do things I can't do by myself. I think we overemphasize the solitary genius though. This is something that uh, uh, Mercius himself says, um, I believe it's Mercier, not uh, Sperber and Mercier, in his um, uh, recent, more recent book. Um, uh, not Born Yesterday. Thank you. Um, where he talks about, uh, is it Heisenberg alone on his island engaging in fundamental uh, uh, problems in physics? But in fact, he's in deep correspondence with the entire physics community uh, of Europe, all those 
uh, who were grappling with the same sorts of um, problems as him. Um, and it's only because this was a collective enterprise that he was able to um, make these, these advances. Um, I think for most normal science, to use a, you know, a Kuhnian term, it's done by intelligent people, but they're not um, fantastically brilliant people. You know, that, uh, instead, they are ordinarily intelligent people who are able to do some of the best science because they work together, because they have tools they've inherited from other ordinarily brilliant people, uh, and because they work hard. Um, not in virtue of this sheer brain power. And perhaps another, another important aspect here when it comes also to connections with other informed people is cumulative culture in human societies, yes. correct? Yes, and it, science is itself a cumulative enterprise. Um, I think, you know, the Kuhnian story about revolutions in science I think it's over-impressed by um, physics. If you look at molecular biology, if you look at chemistry, it's a story of centuries of accumulation of knowledge, not without interruptions and reversals and hiccups, but largely um, accumulation of knowledge. And that looks a lot like cumulative culture. Um, it's more explicit than cumulative culture in the sort of uh, Boyd and Richardson and Henrik sense, uh, where uh, culture accumulates through more kinds of random uh, variation and less um, explicit experimentation and explicit awareness. But that's because uh, scientific culture has developed to the point where we have statistical tools which weren't available to those uh, um, those cultures, and we had to use the tools they had available, um, and nevertheless were able to, over many generations, develop knowledge, uh, genuine knowledge, um, of amazing complexity and uh, great adaptive success. Mm -hmm. So going back to belief specifically, do you think that people really have a systematic understanding of their own beliefs or what we could call a belief system? Um, I don't think, you know, the limitations of the human mind, our ability to recall uh, sets of facts at a particular time is pretty limited. So I think that um, makes all kinds of inconsistency not only possible, but actual. Um, I, it's quite easy for me to believe uh, one thing at one time and later an inconsistent thing without noticing the inconsistency. Uh, because although uh, implicit mechanisms do play a role in bringing in consistency uh, to our attention and forcing us to iron it out. Uh, they're themselves limited and the inconsistencies may not be obvious, they may not be uh, accessible to those uh, unconscious cognitive systems that, that have the job of detecting consistency. So I think we 
There's a limited sense in which we can be said to have belief systems. We try to impose consistency. We're worried about inconsistency when we notice it. And we have these mechanisms which flag it, make us notice it when it's too glaring. Uh, but consistency is, is a fairly local achievement. Um, the other thing is, of course, the world forces uh, some degree of consistency on us. I can um, rely on lots of my beliefs about the world outside, about Oxford, for example, to be consistent because I rely on uh, the streetscape of Oxford to, to uh, bring those beliefs about where the streets are into line. Mm -hmm. And uh, how does belief revision work? I mean, when and how do people revise their own beliefs? So they revise their own beliefs in, in, in generally speaking, only when there's external pressure to do it. Uh, I guess I'm, although I'm, I'm, I don't accept the full cognitive, uh, sorry, predictive processing framework, I like to think in those terms. So if you're in predictive processing, um, it, all of cognition is a matter of making predictions and then updating them in the light of um, surprise when the prediction turns out not to be true or not to be true uh, in some respect. And I think that's how belief revision largely works. It's surprise. Um, I thought that was the case, but now there's something in the world, something outside me, or maybe something inside me. I've noticed something about my own beliefs, which is inconsistent with that. Um, what could that be? Well, I thought it was raining and I go outside and it's not raining. That's the world being surprising. Um, I thought we said we were meeting uh, on Wednesday and you haven't turned up. Um, uh, that's surprising. I need to update my beliefs. But it can also be, um, I thought you were on my side. That is my ideological side. And I thought people on my side believe that, um, I don't know, uh, we should privatize the postal service, they'd say. And you say we shouldn't post privatize the postal service. I've got some updating to do. That's surprising. What do I update? I can update my belief about the postal service. I can update my belief uh, that you're on my side. I can update my belief that you're being serious. There are many things I can do. Uh, belief networks are, are holistic. It's not clear which I should do, but you've said something that's surprising to me. You've given me evidence that's surprising, and now I have to update somehow or other. Mm -hmm. At a certain point in the book, you say that beliefs are shallow. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean that they very often don't ramify throughout the system of beliefs. Um, we could um, uproot them without major contortions. You know, Quine has this metaphor of the web of belief. Um, some things are central to the web of belief, such that to tug them out uh, would be 
revolutionary. I, I would have to revise everything. Actually, Dennett has a nice example in his, um, his article, earlier, fairly early article on brain writing, when he's imagining the possibility of wiring in beliefs into somebody's brain. Could we, you know, use some weird neuroscientific technique to get somebody to believe something um, that they didn't believe before? And he gives the example of saying, me uh, having my belief, uh, I have an extra brother wired in. I have a brother, but uh, say I have two brothers wired in. Could that work? Oh, then it says, well, it doesn't seem like it could. I mean, you may find the right bit of the brain and wire in. I have two brothers. Okay, what happened when I went on holiday as a child? Um, I need beliefs about that. Uh, where is my brother now? Would my, my other brother like that brother? You know, there are just an indefinite no, uh, number of beliefs which have to be updated because that would be deep in the web of my belief. Now, if it's something very shallow though, like um, I uh, had toast for breakfast yesterday, you could probably wire that in because it doesn't entail much else. First kind of belief, very hard to uproot, very central to our web of beliefs, very hard to change. Lots and lots of the beliefs that we take to be identity forming actually are pretty shallow. It wouldn't take all that much to uproot them, um, even though we think we're heavily committed to them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, particularly taking into account the previous questions having to do with beliefs being shallow and we not really having a belief system, what kind of implications do you think that would have for how we understand political groups or political tribes, whatever you like to call them? Uh, because, I mean, there's this idea that people who are part of the same political group, the same political poll, all share the same beliefs. They have a belief system. They are homogeneous when it comes to the beliefs they hold. Uh, so what implications do you think that would have there? So two things. One is we shouldn't regard each other as, as irrational as we do. So uh, I am on the left and lots of people on the left think that people on the right are highly irrational. Uh, and they point to all this evidence like endorsement of conspiracy theories, uh, rejection of climate science, and they say they're irrational. Um, I think that evidence is very misleading. And I don't think the evidence for the right being irrational is at all powerful. Um, now, I don't know the right from the inside in the same way, but they probably have the converse beliefs. People on the left are um, uh, highly irrational, and I suspect their evidence is probably very misleading too. I doubt there are any differences in rationality across um, uh, the ideological perspectives. 
uh, sorry, the ideological spectrum. If there are, I think they're very subtle. That's one thing. The other is um, we should reject the idea that political outlooks are homogenous. In fact, they're grab bags of lots of different elements and they reflect all kinds of compromises. And I think that's true on the left and on the right. So um, historical tension in left-wing politics um, between uh, manual or, or relatively low-skilled labor, I, I use that term um, advisedly because actually it's probably very highly skilled, but we call it low-skilled. Um, so there's a tension between our commitment to people in that kind of jobs and people in the union movement and people and, and our environmental concerns. But Thatcher closed the coal mines in Britain and uh, being on the left, you should think that's a terrible thing. Now, I think we should think that how she went about it was uh, through lots and lots of people into, um, into terrible conditions and we should be upset about that. But closing the coal mines, that's something we should celebrate, um, even if she didn't do it for uh, reasons you know, to do with climate change. So there's a tension between our commitment to industries that are actually environmentally damaging and our commitment to the environment. And on the right, we see similar kinds of tensions. So the right wants to be committed to traditional um, values and traditional institutions like the family, but it also wants to be, be committed to the market. And the market's very good at dissolving traditional institutions and, and, uh, and undermining traditional values because they don't, they don't fit well with uh, the kind of consumption patterns uh, it produces. And it just further, it can market to uh, different identities. That's a great marketing opportunity. Um, so I think we see tensions on both sides and we should see that uh, the coalitions um, of interests on left and right, to some extent, are historical accidents. Um, I think it could well have happened that the right ended up being much more committed to the environment than it is. I think there was a time, not all that long ago, when it could have gone that way. Or maybe it just wouldn't have been an ideological issue at all. Uh, instead, it would have just been seen as you know, shared background. We need to do something about uh, climate change. I think that could well have happened. Um, now, I don't know what the upshot of that for politics is. Perhaps it's somewhat humbling to recognize that um, there's no natural connection between these issues. I'm not entirely sure. Now, I'm not a political scientist, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, since we're talking about politics, do you think that it is irrational for people to be uninformed on politics? Well, I think um, given that we form so many of our beliefs by deference, by looking to people we think uh, know more than us, uh, I think it can be very rational to uh, outsource their acquisition of um, knowledge to them. If I trust you, 
and I think you share in my values, then uh, it probably makes sense for me to say, you know, hey, Ricardo, how should I vote? And were I having to vote in a Portuguese election, I might do exactly that because I don't know anything about the uh, political parties or, or the, you know, the actual candidates. Um, we do often pride ourselves in finding out, uh, but very often what we find out isn't doing a whole lot of work in how we actually act. I think that's particularly true in science. People uh, uh, who see themselves as sophisticated wanted to go and read all about vaccines and masks and lockdowns and so forth. But what they learnt um, is a tiny slice of the evidence and probably couldn't or by itself justify adopting one view or another. Instead, really, uh, their views were justified by deference, hopefully to the right uh, people, to people who are well informed. So acquiring the knowledge can be actually quite epiphenomenal. And given that's the case, then uh, deciding it's just not worth my time to acquire the knowledge is a perfectly rational strategy. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to quote you now and ask you to explain what you say in the book. So if you want to change minds, your own and those of others, you need to look to the social and institutional cues on which beliefs depend. So what does that mean? Lots of our beliefs, as we said earlier, are shallow. That is to say, even though we take ourselves to be deeply committed to them, in fact, they're not central to our web of belief and they can be uprooted. I use the example of uh, environmental belief on the right. At the moment, being pro-environment is associated with the left. Uh, that hasn't historically been the case. Not that it was associated with the right, rather it was bipartisan. I suspect it's still not that deeply rooted. It could be changed. It could come not to be seen as a partisan issue. And I think, in fact, at times, not in Anglophone countries, but in, in Europe, we've actually seen um, times when it has come to be seen as pretty bipartisan. Um, how to change those beliefs? I don't think the way to go about it is to give people evidence, you know, bombard them with here's a study in science and another one in nature and a third of the in the proceedings of the National Academy and say here's why you should believe in climate change and why it's important. Um, lots of people just won't be able to understand those articles. Those who can, if they're motivated to, will be able to find problems with them. Um, instead, uh, it's much more powerful to change the cues to deference. What do people on my side believe? What does a consensus of people believe? What is it rational to believe? You know, what's mocked? And not, it better not just be mocked by the left if I'm on the right, because that's just going to you know, push me in the opposite direction. But if it's pretty universally mocked, if right-thinking people mock it, then I'm probably not going to adopt the belief. So changing this sort of cue 
rather than changing um, the, my exposure to first order evidence, that's what's going to be most powerful in changing my mind. And I do mean my mind. I don't mean those people out there, um, people that uh, um, Jason Brennan called hobbits and hooligans, not us sophisticated people. Uh, I mean all of us. All of us make up our minds by looking to these cues. What do people like me believe? What should people like me believe? Um, what is the consensus on my side? What's taken seriously? I think those are the ways to change these important beliefs. And I also don't think this is paternalistic, but I think we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we will. So would you say then that generally speaking, when we're trying to understand where people's beliefs come from and why they hold particular inaccurate beliefs and what we can do about it, we should look more into the kinds of social, political and other kinds of cues they are exposed to than uh, supposed flaws in their individual cognition. Exactly. Of course, this depends on the area uh, and who the person is. Um, I, no one should give up responding to first order evidence. We all uh, should do it all the time. For many things, we're an, um, an authority. The things around us, nobody uh, may know, you know, better than us on what's directly in front of us. We can all uh, cultivate spheres of expertise, uh, and in, in in those spheres of expertise, we should respond to the first order evidence. You might be a scientist, you might be a philosopher, but then you might be a carpenter or a guitar player or you know a bricklayer and you too have a sphere of expertise in which you should be responding to the the first order evidence um, but for these these kinds of things which divide us um, political and social beliefs and scientific beliefs uh, for most of us uh, it's those cues that matter and not the first order evidence. We're not forming our beliefs on the basis of the first order evidence. We can't, um, we can't do it reliably. Um, so it's looking to the cues that matters. Mm -hmm. So I would like now to get into some specific questions regarding epistemology. In the book, at a certain point, you talk about virtue epistemology. So what is it and how does it work? Um, so virtue epistemology tries to understand belief formation as working well or badly, depending on the character of people. There are two kinds of virtue uh, epistemology, um, and I'm going to set the um, reliablest kind aside. It looks at uh, how well cognitive capacities are working, how well your eyes work, that sort of thing. Uh, it hasn't been very influential in the kind of question um, I'm concerned with. I mean, everybody thinks it's highly respectable and very important, but it, it addresses different kinds of questions. I'm concerned with what's called responsibilist uh, virtue epistemology and also vice epistemology, which tries to understand why people believe what they believe in terms of their epistemic virtues and vices. Uh, 
for example, um, Kasim Kassam suggests that people accept conspiracy theories because they have vices like epistemic arrogance or dogmatism. And uh, Mark Alfano conversely thinks that people reject conspiracy theories because they are epistemically humble. I mean, he doesn't, neither of them would say that's the explanation, rather they think these are important parts of the answer to why people have the beliefs they do. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the beliefs people hold, many times people talk about the role that critical thinking could play here. Do you think that critical thinking as a sort of set of epistemic or cognitive tools that individuals can deploy uh, would work? Um, there's little evidence that critical thinking actually generalizes outside critical thinking courses. That people can become better and better at answering uh, these kinds of questions inside the classroom, but there's very little evidence that it actually helps them navigating the world outside. Uh, that may be because they're just not cued to use it, and maybe we can still develop tools that cue them better. Uh, but right now, you know, reluctantly, because this is a great source of employment for philosophers, reluctantly I don't put much stock in critical thinking as um, as a solution to uh, this kind of epistemic predicament. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's wise to tell people to do their own research? Um, I don't, again, I don't want people not to do their own research. And certain kinds of research I think we we should all do. So I mentioned before, first order uh, evidence in certain things, you're very well placed to, to, to gather the evidence, whatever that might be, whatever your sphere of expertise is. And of course, uh, I've talked about deferring to scientists, but we can only defer to scientists because they engage with the first order evidence. Not only, they do lot, lots of accepting things on trust too, but they must engage with the first order evidence. So I'm not going to tell anybody not to do your own research. On certain things, you should do your own research. When it comes to the kinds of questions we are concerned with, uh, what should I believe about climate science, not being a, a scientist? What should I believe about the moon landing? What should I believe about uh, immigration or um, continental drift? Use a non-political example. There's a certain kind of research I can, you know, um, happily encourage people to do, but it's not looking at the first order evidence. If you want to know what to believe about continental drift, I don't think you should be trying to you know, uh, go down to the coastline with a tape measure or even much more sophisticated um, uh, tools. Or looking at the map and saying, oh, well, you know, look how well Madagascar fits into Africa, continental must be true. Um, we do believe in continental drift in part on the basis of, you know, the kind of jigsaw, how well the pieces fit together. But it's also lots and lots of other things. And we can't 
responsibly um, gather all that evidence ourselves, unless we're absolutely specialists. And even then, um, you know, there's, we rely on evidence from paleobiology and um, uh, geophysics and all, all kinds of different fields um, in order to um, establish the truth of continental rift occurs and has occurred in the past and is responsible for the current shape of the, of the world map. Um, you should do your own research if you're in a position to check, you know, you're an expert on something, on geophysics, for example. Um, great, keep, you know, keep doing your research there. If you're not, the only kinds of research I think you should be doing is the research aimed at finding out, is there a consensus on this topic? And what is it? So shadow research, not research aimed at finding out is continental drift true by looking at the continents and the, and the uh, fossil record and so on. But what do scientists believe on these questions? Um, that's the only kind of research we should be doing. Um, doing our own research in the kind of way that people on the internet tell you to do it is not a, a reliable way of finding things out. We just don't have the tools. Mm -hmm. uh, and what is it that in the book you call epistemic pollution? Um, so before we, we uh, talked about the epistemic environment. So uh, I'm extending the metaphor here. The epistemic environment, a clean epistemic environment, would consist of an environment in which genuinely reliable sources of evidence are highly accessible and marked as such. But that's not the epistemic environment we live in. Instead, um, unreliable sources of information are made salient to us all the time and they are marked as reliable. Um, so for example, people pretend to have PhDs they don't have. They present themselves as having expertise in an area when they don't have it. Um, they produce predatory journals uh, to uh, publish work that looks scientific but is in fact badly conducted. Um, they fabricate data, um, they run advertising campaigns, um, they get the media to present both sides of a debate when in, which, which um, implies that both sides are worth taking seriously when in fact there's a scientific consensus that only one side should be taken seriously. All of these are pollutants in the epistemic environment. They're things that uh, make reliable information less accessible or um, not uh, marked as reliable for us. Mm -hmm. So getting now into one of our last topics, uh, what are nudges? So nudges is, uh, nudge is a term that Thaler and Sunstein uh, came up with Richard Thaler, who went on, I think it was later, to win the Nobel Prize in Economics, and Cass Sunstein, who's uh, 
a law professor by by uh, day job, I believe, but publishes a great deal in cognitive scientific kinds of areas, and also was an, an advisor for Obama. Um, and they define a nudge as a way of changing the environment in which people choose to make better choices more likely by making them more salient uh, or recommending them to people um, in order to promote their own welfare or the social welfare. So uh, to use an example uh, from Taylor's own work, uh, they found that people can be nudged into saving more for retirement. People tend to accept the default on an employment contract. So if the employment contract says 1.5% of your wage will be sequestered into a, a retirement savings plan, people tend to say, okay, that's fine, I'll accept that. Even if they could change it, they could drop it to zero or increase it to 25% they wanted to. Um, instead, they tend to accept the default. Uh, that's a nudge. The default effect is a nudge. It nudges them in the direction of accepting that. So Thaler and Sunstein suggest we can nudge them into saving more by bumping it up. If we bump it up to 99%, people will say, no way. And for good reason, they won't have enough money to live on. Uh, bump it up to 7% and they might say, yep, that's reasonable. And they'll tend to accept that. So that's a nudge. We change the default and we change uh, what people tend to do. I only, I, they're often overplayed and I think the recent literature has suggested that they're actually a lot less powerful uh, than we often tend to think. Uh, they only they have a relatively subtle influence on behavior, but I think it's a real influence. We can nudge people into changing their behavior to some degree. Mm -hmm. But do you think that nudges, if and when they work, could be problematic epistemically or ethically, for example? So they can be, but not for the reason that lots of people think. Uh, the standard response, many people worry that they are paternalistic. And they're paternalistic because this is how Thaler and Sunstein think of them. They bypass good reasoning. Um, reasoning is uh, attending to your evidence, but a default isn't evidence. So if you get me to save more by changing the default, You've manipulating me. And Thaler and Sunstein just say, yeah, that's right. But it's, it's, it's an okay kind of manipulation because it's in my interest and also because nothing stops me from changing it. If I notice it and I'm motivated, then I, I will. So, uh, actually, no, I'm going to say less than that. I don't think it's paternalistic at all because I think the way to understand a nudge is as providing evidence. Uh, a nudge is evidence that, in this case, the default effect, is evidence that this is regarded by the people who produced the form that I'm filling in as a reasonable um, amount to save for retirement. 
And I should be guided by that if I don't have any uh, conflicting evidence or, you know, difference preferences. If I don't, if I think I'm not going to live to retirement, I don't want to live for retirement, then perhaps it's, it'd be rational for me to change. And I probably would. And uh, the evidence does suggest that they are only influential for people who don't have strong preferences beforehand and don't have um, conflicting sources of evidence. Um, and those are just the kinds of people who should be guided by testimony. So I don't see this as paternalistic at all. And to that extent, I don't think it's problematic. Now, it can be problematic um, if it's used to manipulate people, that is, into suggesting this is a reasonable amount to save, for example, when it isn't. Perhaps all the experts think you've got to save 12% of your salary and I'm uh, just a malicious form designer and I say 2%. It's not widely known. It should be 12%. Uh, in that case, I'm, I'm uh, acting against people's interests. Uh, but the problem here isn't that I'm being paternalistic. It's that I'm providing them with bad information. And we don't think there's a special problem with providing with bad information. That's a problem, but it's just the problem of providing with bad information. It's the problem of maybe lying to people. That's a bad thing to do, but it's not a problem to specific to nudges. So where would you place nudges in the broader context of the framework you present in the book when it comes to understanding human epistemology? Uh, nudges are higher order evidence. Uh, at least most nudges, the canonical ones discussed in the literature, simply provide higher order evidence. They're one more piece of evidence to be integrated with all the other evidence that people have um, that this is the, a reasonable thing to do. This is something that's being recommended to you. Most nudges are implicit recommendations. Uh, so they're just one more piece of higher uh, order evidence. They're not a particularly powerful one. Um, they are significant, especially for people who don't have other sources of evidence. Uh, but there's nothing particularly special about them. Just one more piece of higher order evidence among the many routinely made available to us. In a clean epistemic environment, one without pollutants, those are going to be reliable sources of higher order evidence, in, in the light of which I can make up my own mind, given my preferences. Um, if I don't want to save for retirement, then I won't be nudged into saving for retirement. Um, if I have the desire to have a, a uh, comfortable retirement, then I'll, uh, and I'm living in a clean epistemic environment, then probably that source of higher order evidence is going to be reliable. Mm -hmm. Another question then, uh, do people usually respond to evidence? Well, I think they do. Um, lots and lots of first order evidence uh, we don't respond to but because we have trouble processing it. But we live in environments, as social animals, we live in environments in which there are many, many sources of higher order evidence. There's all kinds of explicit and implicit testimony you should believe this. You should behave like that. Um, I mean, think of roads. They're kind of the, the implicit testimony. 
this is the easiest way to get somewhere. Um, and we respond to that kind of evidence quite routinely without even noticing that they are evidence for us. Um, and as social animals, that's the way we're, we're adapted to behave, but it's also, it's not merely adaptive, it's actually a rational way for us to behave. Mm -hmm. uh, one last question then. Uh, are humans rational? Yes. But our rationality is uh, not exactly what we thought it is. So uh, philosophers love to, to quote Kant in the uh, famous Enlightenment essay uh, in which uh, he presents the idea of thinking for yourself without using other people's understanding. And that's the ideal of rationality. It's the solitary genius thinking hard, it's Descartes in his chair in front of the fire, cut off from other people, thinking hard, processing their, their evidence, or at most reading a book. Um, human rationality is perfectly calibrated for searching for higher order evidence relying on the wisdom of crowds and the wisdom of past generations embodied in tools, in uh, books and in information resources spread across the internet, spread across my informants, my social group, for example. Uh, and in being um, guided by these things, I'm being guided by genuine evidence. So I think we are rational animals, but our rationality isn't exactly what we thought it was. Very well. So the book is, again, Bad Beliefs, Why They Happen to Good People. I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Levy, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find your work on the internet, apart from the book? Uh, well, you can uh, go to my Phil Papers, uh, P H I L P A P E R S dot org, Phil Papers uh, dot org uh, site. You can just search for me under uh, my name and you'll get links to many, many of my papers. Um, I post uh, links to many of them. I publish mainly open access. Good news is the book is open access. If you go to the OUP, Oxford University Press um, site and search for my book, there's a, uh, a link to a PDF of the book, free to download. Um, so I hope you enjoy reading it. Right. So, Dr. Levy, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. And it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Ricardo. It's been fun. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this episode until the end. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and consider making a pledge there, starting at $1 per month. You also have links to PayPal. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett Perga, Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans, Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf, Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, 
Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whitting, Bernardo Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Varen, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Bo Weingarder, Becca Newberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegar, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, O'Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurban, Simon Colombo, George Pinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguenzo, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andreff, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Unig, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dermiti Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Fesal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Denise Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackleford and Sunny Smith. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stefaniak, Ian Gilligan, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanag, Dam Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardos France, Thomas Trumbull and Noon Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.